Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. Hello, how are we all doing? Now, the keen-eyed among you who listened to last week's podcast will know that I said that Tanya Esteban was coming on this week. However, being the busy little beaver that she is, she has had to reschedule. So she will be on the podcast, but at a later date. But luckily, that does mean that we've got a fantastic podcast a little bit earlier, which is with Heather Buttivant. In this episode, we talk about a subject close to my heart, which is Cornish rock pools. Heather is a native to North Cornwall and her interest in rock pools has persisted from childhood into adult life. And she's volunteered with Cornwall Wildlife Trust and written books including Rock Pool, The Extraordinary Encounters Between Tides. Now's the part of the podcast where I try and get you to cough up some dough. There's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help out the podcast by donating £3 to help keep it going. If you can leave a review on iTunes or whatever kind of platform you're listening to, that helps us out massively, especially when they're good reviews. Today we talk about why rock pools fascinate Heather, the best places in Cornwall to go rock pooling, and how tough some of the critters are that call rock pools home. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thanks for having me along, Jack. No problem. I was at uh, RSPB Dungeness the other day and I saw an, a book on rock pooling in their gift shop and I recognised the name on it and I thought, I know that person, she's coming up on my podcast. So your book's obviously, is, is, how, is it an old book? How, how long's the book been out? It's not brand new, is it? No, the, the paperback came out last year during lockdown and I think the hardback was the year before. Oh, okay, so fairly, relatively recent then. Yeah, and then I've yeah. got a new children's book out as well that came out this year. Oh, fantastic. Even busy then. Trying <laughs> Always. <to. laughs> so um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Cornish rock pool. I guess rock pooling in general, but specifically Cornwall, because are you are you born and bred Cornish? Or are you moved down there? What are you? Well, I, I was actually born on a bathroom floor somewhere in Somerset, but all of my earliest memories are Cornwall. So my family moved down when I was very tiny, so... As, as far as as far as I'm concerned, yeah, Corn- Cornwall has always been the sort of home, the route. But I've I've travelled a lot as well. So. Okay, you're not you're not classed as an Emmet then. Uh, hope hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> I I used to live in uh, Falmouth in Cornwall for, for just when I was at university. I did find myself after three years, I was starting to go local, and I'd start moaning about uh, the tourists coming down and and second houses and things like that. I thought, oh, I'm going native now when I was down there. So I'd love to have stayed. It was a fantastic place. Anyway, we're not talking about my housing situation. We're talking about rock pools. So I thought one of the interesting things to talk about was what are the ethics of rock pooling? Because it all too often, it's easy to just think, right, we'll go down with a bucket and a little net and we catch things. But obviously some animals are going to be a little bit more delicate and we should obviously think about not harming and stressing them out. So what kind of ethics go into rock pooling? Yeah, so... Rock pools, beaches, like any other environment, you don't want to disturb it. You know, we're all about, as naturalists, we're all about our love for the animals and seeing them behaving as naturally as we can. That's what makes it special when you have that connection with an animal in its own in its own home. So with, with rock pooling, I think there's this traditional image of you have to have a net and, and a bucket. And although nets 
might occasionally have some uses. I actually have pretty much never used one on the shore and all of my public events, I advise people not to bring nets. And that's standard practice. If you go onto any organized rock pooling events, they'll always ask you not to bring a net. And that's because uh. nets, because they're, they have a hard frame and small mesh, if you poke around under rocks, there are lots of little soft body creatures there, plus all the seaweed that you can scrape off and, and harm. And also, if you've ever used a net, you'll know that crab legs and prawns and things get really tangled up in the bottom there. They can be quite hard to get out. And there are a lot of rock pool animals like crabs, brittle stars, which can quite easily lose a limb if they're put under stress. And although they have these remarkable powers of growing them back eventually, obviously that that reduces their ability to survive and feed in the meantime and cannot be a nice experience. So is it more, would you advocate just a hands-off, just look at the pool or or is it the opposite, hands-on, but not using a net, so like kind of peeling things back or what, what would you kind of suggest people do then? Okay, I'd, I'd suggest always the very, very best thing is just to look. Just yeah. you could to gently lift back seaweed, to, to gently look underneath rocks and move them back to where you found them gently. So you're not crushing anything. So you're not disturbing the habitat. And obviously when you do that, you're much more likely to see, say, hermit crabs actually interacting with each other and running around the pool and feeding and see their little their little feeding parts going. And it's it's a more, for me, a more exciting, interesting experience when you see them than just grabbing them. However, I'm not completely hands off. I, I would say, you know, if you're if you're gentle, careful, never pick up anything that you're scared of and think you might drop because you might hurt it. But, you know, if, if you're careful, keep the animals in water because that's where they want to be. I always take a little tub and actually just use a little tub, like an old margarine tub or anything from home like that. Reuse, reuse your household stuff so you can scoop an animal up gently so it falls into the tub with some seawater and then it's comfortable, you're comfortable, and you can watch it without having to having to handle it any more than you have to or it wants to be handled. I think that makes sense. I think there is something to be said about having the animal, like I say, not necessarily in your hand, but in a tub or something, because if you're a kid and you're trying to infuse a child, it can be very difficult when you're pointing out, look at that seventh hermit crab on the left behind the rock, whereas if you've got it in the tub and they can see it and it's looking at them, that's going to excite them a little bit more. So I think, yeah, there is something to be there. I, I used to use my um, my hands when I was rock pooling and then I discovered velvet swimming crabs and they're <laughs> absolute psychopaths. So I would never put my hand under a rock now. If you don't know what they are, they kind of got red eyes, spikes, and they're just, just yeah, nutty, nutty crabs. They, they but, but, yeah. They're very efficient predators, velvet swimming crabs. I always say I have a lot of respect for them. They're, they're really beautiful to observe from a distance but they they have flattened back, back legs which is why they can they can actually swim through the water so what I do at events actually is normally take a big white tray which provides a good clear background to see the animals against and we'll we'll put a few creatures not too many with plenty of water in a tray so children can gather around and really see them interacting but having said that I would never put a velvet swimming crab in one of those trays or even more than one shore crab, because crabs have quite a habit of attacking other animals and each other. Children. And and children and adults. <laughs> <laughs> I think in, in my book, I've got, when I talk about the velvet swimming crab, I, I've got, I sort of describe a scene on one of my public events where I, I had, a, I had a, a chap come along, someone's 
father or grandfather, I think, who who was all very, very, oh, yes, well, I, I know about crabs. Yeah, I, I'm not afraid to pick them up. I said, well, I'll leave this one in the bucket because I'd rather not handle it. He said, oh, I don't mind handling it. I said, well, be careful. He said, I can do this, picked it up. And of course, it attached itself to his finger and uh, <laughs> I had to run over and catch it to stop stop it being flung across the beach. So yeah, so, yeah st- stay within your limits. They're a bit, I always think if they were a person, they'd be this kind of person who drink 10 pints of Stella. Like they're pretty, uh, pretty yeah, on it. If you've not seen one, I mean, they're beautiful creatures. I don't want to demonize them. They are absolutely beautiful, but don't mess with them is the, is the short and curlies of it. Yeah, and, they're definitely devil crabs. Yeah, yeah that's, a, I think, is that a, like kind of, name for them i think i've heard that before it's it's what my son's always called them and okay it's quite yeah well i think it's a, a bit apt and that kind of brings us on a little bit what i was going to ask next as well which is what kind of safety measures to consider albeit not necessarily defense against crabs but when you're going on to a, a beach or rock pooling again it's very easy to be blase about it but things like the tides and, and whatnot so yeah what kind of measures should we take to make sure we can do it safely yeah, there's some, some quite simple things you can do before you go to any beach and whether you're rock pooling or not. I mean, make, most people who end up in trouble on a beach have not intended to, to be in the water, have not really been aware of the tides. Um, that's probably the, the biggest risk, along with rock falls, which can occasionally happen. So the best thing to do is to always check the tide times for your beach, which you can do easily on internet, put your location and tide times into the internet and it'll tell you what time the low tide is at your beach is there a website you'd recommend for that or, or are they all pretty much as good as each other they're 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 all yeah very, very similar i mean the tides can be- vary a little bit it won't necessarily be a completely accurate p- prediction but within you know half an hour or so it'll tell you when the low tide is once you know the time of the low tide i'd always advise to arrive an hour to two hours before the low tide so that you're working as the tide's going out and you need to be prepared at the sort of time that low tide happens to start making your way up the beach. So you're not then racing against the tide because you have to be aware that beaches, beaches, although they slope downwards in general, um, have various ups and downs in them, which means that you can be right at the lowest point of the beach and not realise that the tide's actually coming in behind you in a dip. Um, okay. And that, that catches a lot of people out. Also, if you go past a headland or anything, if you can't see your way off the beach, you need to make sure you've moved away from that spot before the tide changes. I, I got caught out at Porth Towin uh, years ago. There was a, a fin whale got washed up. It was hit by a boat and I'd never seen, a, you know, never seen a whale of any description. It was 17 metre long fin whale. I've got to go see this. But it was kind of there was one headland, a little beach, another headland, a little beach and another headland. So it was tucked away and I got there. And as the tide was coming in, it was pretty much coming up to my knees before I got off. Like, and it really surprises you because you think, oh, I've got ages yet. It's over there, but it, it can really come in. I mean, it, it, yeah. I guess the topography changes with each beach, but it's better to be safe than sorry, definitely. Yeah. And of course, the very best tides for exploring the lower shore are our biggest tides, what we call spring tides, when the tide goes out further and comes in further. But of course, that means that when the tide changes on days like that, although you've been able to go out further than you normally would, it's got a long way to come in and it will do so more quickly than it does on a smaller neap tide. So, yeah. And if it's got the wind behind it, you have to be aware there's swell. If you go too close to the edge of the sea, you need to watch out for, for waves. So I always advise on my Rockpool Rambles to start well in advance of the low tide, stay well away from cliffs and stay away from that very edge of the sea where, you know, you could get washed off the rocks if, if you're not careful particularly in Cornwall where it's always stormy 
Yeah, it's uh, everyone has this romanticised idea of Cornwall, thinking, oh, it's it's lovely and sunny like the Mediterranean. And I think, well, it is for about a week in July, and the rest of the time it's just mizzle. It's yeah, just it always rains in August. As soon as yeah. the schools break up, we have six weeks of mizzle. Yeah, but <laughs> um, but but yeah, and you can go, you can go on the beach anytime of year, and that's that's something that I like to remind people of. People think of it as being a summertime, you know, thing to do, which. It is, but you know, a, a nice day any time of year can be absolutely brilliant. And in the winter, some of the seaweed dies back, which means you have a better view into the rock pools and you can you can see the animals a bit more easily than you can in the summer. I suppose is it best to go with another person then as well? I mean, I guess it depends if you can find someone who, who is as keen a bean as you are. But I suppose from a health and safety point of view, having someone else that, and I guess someone to share the experience with actually on another level. But if you can get someone else, is that a good idea? It's always a good idea. And um, I, I I see more, I learn more whether, when I'm with a group of people because you've got lots of lots of different people searching, looking in different ways. Um, the best thing, you know, if, if you're someone who's never been rock pooling or never found very much before, um, if you look up uh, your local wildlife trust or the wildlife trust at the beach you're visiting, see if you can organise to be there on a day when they've got a public event. Uh, there are lots of marine groups, local groups that do local um, events. The National Trust do some as well. Uh, if you do that, you're there with experts who have a good idea what they're looking at and how to look for things and how to keep yourself and others safe. And they'll have done all that looking up the tides for you. Um, but also with so many people there, you're far more likely to see, you know, the sort of exciting things people want to see at the beach, like starfish and pipefish and all those lovely all the weird things we get. All the good stuff, definitely. And you touched on it a little bit there as well, but is there a best time of year to go then? I mean, I guess summer, presumably things are more active, but yeah. So is there is there a best time of year? I'd, I'd say not really. Every time of year is, is subtly different. We're coming to the autumn at the moment with, you know, probably over the next few weeks, we might start to get more stormy weather, which means you start to get strange things being washed in the, the barnacles the goose barnacles there's been reports of portuguese man of war um uh siphonophore colonies being washed in over the last few weeks and so things change obviously the springtime really from about february onwards is really busy on the shore lots of lots of animals start coming in shore to lay eggs so some things like like wrasse that that lay there make nests in shallow water rasping type of fish very colorful fish we have they make their nests quite close inshore and on some of those low spring tides around sort of the spring and early summer um you can you can come across these these amazing seaweed nests that they've been making oh what are they completely exposed then is it, it go oh right i didn't know that they, they, they can be on the lowest tides um corkwing grass nests oh too. i do like corkwing grass they're beautiful they're not very big are they but they're if you get them in the right light they look like they should be somewhere like the red sea or the caribbean not not the British Isles, they're very pretty. Yeah, they, they have wonderful stripy turquoise markings on their face and, and big pouty lips that make them look kind of tropical. Yeah, they do. They look a bit like, I don't know if they if rats are anywhere related to parrotfish, but they always remind me a little bit of a parrotfish, the sort of thing you'd see on Blue Planet. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very beaky things. <laughs> and they've actually got, um, they, they feed on things like barnacles and shells and crabs. And they they have a special throat plate a, a set of blunt rounded teeth um sort of like a, a cove that's had all the teeth snapped off it at the back of their throat and they use that to crush shells and we, we sometimes find those throat plates washed up on the beach oh They're wow really, really bizarre things 
I have seen with RAS as well. Uh, there's um, I think it's an isopod, but it replaces the tongue. I don't know if you've ever come across that. There's like a little parasite that does that. Yeah, I um, I've seen it in weaver fish. Uh, the, the rats have these great big isopod. They're like wood lice, really, but they're they're parasites. So if you think like a blood sucking wood louse, it's a bit like that. Um, these great big swimming isopods that attach onto their particularly their heads and bodies. I'm getting and the mixed up. You're right. I've yeah. seen I've seen those sometimes, and they are amazing, but terrifying because <laughs> they they are really quite huge compared to the size of the rats. It's about you know like having having a, a parasite the size of half your leg attached to you. It's it's uh, quite freaky. Um, and similarly freaky are the, the weaver fish. So um, if if you've ever been to a, a sandy beach in, in the summer at low tide and heard people getting stung by walking on something that stings, those are, those are weaver fish. They have a dorsal fin with spines in it, um, which effectively, if, if something stands on them as, as protection, they inject venom and weaver fish they're, they're they're fabulous little things they look kind of like a wheelie bin if you look at their face they've got a, a great big lower jaw that opens up like a like a bin with with strange they look like spindly teeth in there but they're actually something else but but they they sometimes get a parasite which is also an isopod i think which which yeah replaces their tongue and i i don't tend to look in the mouths of weaver fish when i find them but <laughs> But but I I have yeah I have seen them these weird. What's the um because I've we I've never actually seen a weaver fish in the flesh but I know about them. What's the sting comparable to? I mean I'm, obviously it's not deadly but like is it like a is it like a bee sting or is it a little bit more severe than that? Do you know at all? Well I I'm pleased to say I've never been stung by one even though I, I did grow up on a beach which was uh, on the north coast where you know it's got quite reputation for having them. Um, I've seen I've seen lots of poor people get stung um, and it, it does it does seem to be very, very painful. It's maybe like having a few wasps sting your sting your foot at once. That's sort of oh, thing. OK. Um, maybe like a hornet, something like that. It's it's it is quite powerful. Um, the best thing to do, uh, you always hear people say, if you get stung by a jellyfish, or whatever, make sure you wee on it, which <laughs> just don't don't because because it, you'll probably get an infection and the, the water isn't hot enough to do disabilize mm. the disabled the the sting so what you need is water as hot as you can bear which is not enough to scald you but sort of water that's you know over your normal body temperature oh okay um and soak your soak your foot in that for as as long as you as long as you can is that the same with jellyfish yeah oh okay that's a good tip to know then if anyone gets stung then just hot water that you can bear yeah uh some people say as well that with with jellyfish, what something you can do to get the tentacles off is to scrape something along your skin, like like the edge of a credit card, something like that. Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever been stung by jellyfish off the top of my head. I tend to give them a fairly healthy um, distance when I see them, and I'm just the, the, my basic print. I, I know they're not all stinging, but I just kind of give them all a wide berth, try, better safe than sorry. But I've seen. Um, lion's mane before in the water and i know they can give you a bit of a nasty mm. sting amazing to look at like a really vivid red with the tentacles so I'm, I'm i'm very conscious that i know a lot of people that might be scared or weary of these animals but they're amazing creatures and it's important to give them the respect they deserve yeah i think a slightly more like approachable one to meet on the shore are the anemones yes um, yeah 
if yeah, anyone is listening, if you've been to a beach, you might well have seen anemones on the rock. And at, at low tide, you often see beadlet anemones, which just look like little wine gums, like little little jelly sweets on the rock, just these rounded, often red, sometimes green or yellow blobs. Um, but when they're in the water, if you can find one in a in a pool that's open, they they have lots of tentacles. They open out these tentacles and use them to sting tiny little prey, normally little bits of plankton, tiny prawns, things like that. Um, and they, they're really easy to see. And I think one of the activities in, in Beach Explorer, my children's book about getting to know these anemones, it's not necessarily to stick your finger in because you don't, mostly their sting isn't strong enough to penetrate your sting, your skin so you wouldn't feel it. I mean, like all jellyfish sting, but not all of them have a powerful enough sting for you to feel them. But if you touch one, then touch your eyes, you could you could feel it so uh, okay. what i what i suggest is you get uh something like just a little piece of seaweed that's been washed up on the shore or a pencil or something like that and just use that to very lightly touch the edge of the tentacles to see what happens um because what the what the anemones and jellyfish have in those tentacles are things we call nematocysts which are stinging cells and inside each of those cells is like a coiled it's like a little coiled rope with a harpoon on the end that as soon as anything brushes against that cell it fires this out into the into the skin of the passing animal and that's what contains the toxin to paralyze it wow. so, so i mean that's amazing yeah. when you think these things are so primitive i don't know is it true jellyfish don't have a brain or they're, they're kind of really really basic nervous system and yet yeah it's their, their nervous system is is isn't quite like ours yes yeah, no. starfish as well don't have a central brain in the same way. They have this sort of ring of these ring of ring of uh, sensory neurons that communicate with with their arms. Yeah, it's a it's an alien world in there, isn't it? All these weird yeah. things, you know, it, it's incredible, really. And uh, I, I suspect you might be sorry. Go on, you're going to say something else. Go on. I was just going to say, if you do touch an anemone or, or something, what you'll feel is that it feels quite sticky on the piece of seaweed. It feels like it's sort of holding on to it. And those are all those little tiny harpoons that have lodged into it. Right. You'd feel the same if you put your finger in. But, no, but yeah, <laughs> um, don't do and that. that. Those are all those little <laughs> tiny harpoons lodging in and holding That's on. That's crazy. To it. That's mental. And I suspect you might be a little bit biased with this, but is Cornwall the best place to go for rock pooling then in the UK? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that ev- everywhere's everywhere's different. I think obviously the best places are places with a rocky shore yeah. so if you're around the east coast of england the southeast coast there tend to be fewer rocky beaches yeah. there is a lot of sand which can be interesting in its own right but is a little bit less biodiverse on the shore but but yeah i've, I've had some amazing rock pooling um experiences all around uh you know rocky coasts of wales um e- even devon's all right i'll, I'll give devon a shout out <laughs> i feel sorry for that yeah <laughs> there's some fantastic beaches in devon um, yeah Somerset, Dorset, and all around west coast of Scotland, even the east coast. I found amazing things up in Scotland, Northern Ireland. Goodness, yeah. And anywhere with rocks, you never know what you might find. Everywhere's slightly different, so it's worth a look. I've tried a couple of places. I mean, I think Cornwall spoils you, I think. If you've you've kind of started rock pooling there, everywhere else uh, to a degree pales in comparison. So, I mean, I've been up to places like Northumberland, and you'll find stuff, but just not quite... I, with with a lot of the Cornish rock pools, like I used to do a lot around Gillingvase Beach and Rosemullion and places like that, every rock 
if you'd lifted one up, you'd find something or the pools would just be alive with stuff. Whereas some of these other rock pools I've visited, you can sometimes really have to search hard to find anything. So I think, um, yeah, if you're a keen rock pooler, uh, Cornwall is is, is got to be one of the top places to visit in the country. Yeah, the, the south coast as well, because the other thing that makes a big difference is how exposed the beach is to wave action. So those sort of when people think of Cornish beaches, they tend to think of the surfing beaches on the north coast, which have really fine sand, that golden sand. And that's made by really powerful waves battering everything, which can make it quite hard for rock pools to to form and to uh, have life in them. Whereas the south coast uh, around Falmouth, where you were, is, is very sheltered. So. so typically the south coast is better then? It's... <laughs> I'm oh, a North Coast oh, okay. girl, but, okay. but, uh, rockier. Yeah, but, but it's rockier. It's 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 more sheltered. It's more okay. sheltered, so you get different things. But but having said that, if you get somewhere that's sheltered enough to have rock pools on the North Coast, you can find things like cup corals, which I see less of on the South Coast, um, especially the scarlet and gold cup corals, which are just absolute treasure trove of loveliness. There. Well, I always corals. think of. Um, of rock pools as being this great expanse of rocks but I guess you know by definition anywhere that's got a little bit of rock and, and a pool I was at Constantine Bay um, a couple of months ago and there's just this and, and on the kind of left of it there's a little outcrop of rocks not massive and I thought there's not going to be a lot in there but I guess because it's almost like an island there's loads of stuff tucked in there because there's nowhere else to go so there were there were shannies and there were giant gobies which is one of the things I was hoping mm -hmm. to find um montague's blennies and loads of weird stuff and i guess it's because habitats at a premium they're all kind of crammed in there so that was really good to to see them so yeah i guess we shouldn't poo poo the north coast too much fabulous yeah no gi giant gobies are, are, are amazing things really really big gobies with big fat lips and they're they're, they're one of my one of my favorites very southwesterly species you only generally find them in the uk and probably sort of you know the the far southwest Generally, I don't know if they get them on the Channel Islands as well, maybe. But yeah, I, th I think they do. But with um, so, and you might actually know the answer to this because I wondered this myself. Have they always been in Cornwall, or are they a recent arrival, or is it that we just don't know? Because I wondered whether I know one of the theories that is that with climate change and warming seas, it's becoming. I mean, certainly with other species like Cooch's bream and other Mediterranean fish are moving up to the southwest of England now. But I wasn't sure if the giant gobies have always been in Cornwall or if they're a recent arrival, relatively. Um, I'm not sure. I think there are records going quite back quite a long way of giant gobies, but okay. they are a more they are a more southerly species. So if you were go to go to sort of northern France, Brittany, that sort of area, you you would find giant gobies around the coast there and southwards from there. So they're they're at the they're at the edge of their their limit at the moment here and like say there are quite a lot of species that we are seeing more of or that are becoming more regularly established like the little St Piran's hermit crab that has been intermittently recorded in Cornwall in the past um, and was present around sort of up to sort of around 50 years ago when the Torrey Canyon oil disaster happened and then from then on we had no records at all until a few years ago when suddenly we started to find them again and they, again, they're a quite common species of hermit crab in Brittany. And they've got these marvellous black and white checkerboard eyes and hairy equal sized claws. They're fabulous little things. And they seem to not only have returned, but they've been able, they seem to have been able to breed, as in we're finding 
Um, over the last couple of years, we've had quite a lot of young ones, which could be another wave of plankton coming over from Brittany. But it seems quite likely that they are managing to breed. I think, that, was that Falmouth they were just, I think it was Gillingface, wasn't it? Or somewhere around there. Um, yeah. I seem to remember think, that being a headline when I was living down there. Yeah, and uh, I think they were originally recorded from Mausel. I might be wrong on that. I have a feeling okay. when they were first found in the UK. I think they were in Mausel, but but they spread as far up about as Wembury on the South Devon coast. Oh, right, okay. Um, and they've been found up to sort of the Bude area, I think, on the north coast, but they, they're they still quite confined to the very southwest. I've never knowingly seen one. I mean, I must have seen one, but I've never looked at a hermit crab and go, you're a St. Pyrians. I must, I must have gone... Um, gone past one and and we went and you you mentioned giant gobies people just call, wonder that about six foot gobies they're, they're not quite that big but they are big for a goby aren't they yeah so so uh the most common species of goby that we get in the rock pools is the rock goby yeah and and that one would sort of barely grow to the length of my hand um i've only got small hands as well <laughs> but um, that the giant goby can get a bit bigger than that, maybe sort of, you know, another sort of third to twice the size. Uh, it's a bit more dumpy looking. Um, and it's got a slightly different coloration. The rock goby normally has a yellow top to its its uh, first dorsal fin, whereas the giant goby has a more grey top and it's sort of it's described as being salt and pepper colouring. Okay. I've definitely it always has like food, food relationships with fish. Well, I guess do not eat a giant goby, they are protected. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to, to even fish for one without a special license. You, you no. can't. You can't. Um, you can't trap one without a special license there. But it's it's interesting because they're quite. Um, they're not shy. I've noticed with giant goby because I was trying to film them and I thought, well, I've got to do this by the book, so I was doing it remotely. So I was placing these cameras in rock pools as to not disturb them. Yeah. And I thought, oh god, they're never going to come out. They come out straight away. They're not bothered at all, and they come and look at the camera. I don't know whether they can see their reflection or whatever, but they're almost curious. So that was really interesting to uh, to see that. But they're amazing, amazing creatures. I mean, you've mentioned a few rock pool critters. Uh, is there a species that stands out to you, or dare I say, do you have a favourite? Oh, favourite. Well, I I think we had a conversation about uh, sea slugs when we were first in touch. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of well, pretty much all mollusks. So we have some really interesting and unusual mollusks in the rock pools. And I, th I think what I like about the rock pool mollusks is you kind of have an idea from your experiences in, uh, you know, in your garden of, of what a slug and a snail is, what they look like, what they do. And they are, they're sort of brown things and they, they chomp on your lettuces. They're, that's, that's what they do. Whereas in the rock pools, things are a little bit different. Uh, you know, they're, the sea slugs that we we get in the rock pools um, are mostly mostly carnivores. They're mostly predators. Oh, so, I didn't know that. I did not yeah. know that. Okay. So there are a few species that eat seaweed, like the sea hares, which grow quite big. Um, but most most of the species of, of sea slug eat things like sponges, um, bryozoans and hydroids so and these are little types of animals some even eat anemones we're talking about these stinging cells in anemones and the tentacles not to go near them there are a couple of species of sea slug i can think of that we have in our rock pools that eat anemones and uh. it's like the great gray sea slug and that's that sea slug not only does it eat the anemone it takes in the color of the anemone so it starts off white and when it's eaten the anemone it turns sort of pink or brown 
and it takes in those stinging cells and preserves the nematocysts and puts them into these long sort of hairy appendages. It's, it's serrata on its back, which gives it some protection from other creatures that might want to eat it. Wow. So it's taking so it's, in that, that yeah. um, I don't know if you'd call it a toxin, but yeah, it's taking in that sting and using it for its own defence. Yeah, and a lot of sea slugs do that. And they're, they're often very brightly coloured because that's a warning to other animals that they're, they're not good to eat. And very often with, with good reason, some of them take in um, acids and things from their food. So there are several species of slug that eat sponges that if they get disturbed, they can secrete um, sulfuric acid or hydrochloric acid through their skin, uh, which again, for a little squidgy creature, the idea that it's both a carnivore and has all these hidden defenses, plus they're just amazing. You get these really strange colors, you know, really bright purple and pink and red slugs and green ones, and they, they, they're perfectly camouflaged on what they eat like some of them look just like the sponges that they eat and so so yeah i i am i am a, i am quite a slug fan because th there always seems to be something new to learn about them well i know a lot of my fellow underwater photographers go absolutely potty over nudibranchs or, or you know sea slugs they absolutely love them i'm going to upset you a little bit now because i could say i've never seen the appeal myself but um i mean they, they, they're interesting to a degree I, I, i'm more of a fish man myself but um I know that I can see why with the colours. Well, you know, I forget the one that's white with kind of yellow bits on on the tips. I've God knows what species it is, but there are some really colourful yeah. ones out there. So yeah, I, like I the, like the yellow clubbed. Yeah, that must be the yeah. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll assume that's the one um, I was talking about. I've seen sea hare. They're the you mentioned they're the big ones. I think I've yeah, seen they're, those. They're, they're more like a herd of cows. Really, they they graze on the seaweed and okay. they they can they can occur in enormous numbers particularly in the summer as they start to grow really fat you see them all over and they they lay really weird eggs they've got eggs that look like um did you ever play with silly string like cans of silly yes. string yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it looks a bit like that or like a spaghetti it's actually hard to the touch but they lay these big strings of pink stuff around around the seaweed and like um like cuttlefish and squid if you disturb a sea hare, they squirt out a cloud of purple ink. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm learning so, everything so, today. Sea slugs are cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think that's that's what I like about them. That they are interesting. It's those relationships. Because if you find a sea slug, you also find the thing it's eating. So there is a there are a couple of species of sea slug that eat the eggs of fish. Um and one of them actually eats the eggs of gobies. And I'm pretty sure I found it on the eggs of giant gobies. Oh, okay. Um, the Kalma the group, they, they eat the eggs of fish. And so Kalma gobufaga, which is weirdest, weirdest name. Um, it's quite an unassuming little grey slug, but all the serrata on its back look just like fish eggs. And it's so efficient in how it eats because it's, its prey is so nutrient dense that it doesn't need an anus. So, I, I, what? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it's so, a slug without a bottom. It doesn't defecate. So where's the food going? So it eats the food, but where's it going then? It's, it doesn't come out? Energy. No, it doesn't come out. <laughs> well, that's blew my mind. I didn't know there were any animals without an anus. So surely it just keeps growing and growing then. I, I don't know. I don't know how long they live. They're they're quite mysterious little creatures. Oh, okay. I 
I don't know what their life cycle is. I, I suspect that they just appear each season because okay. fish eggs, fish eggs are only available, of course, for a short time. Yeah. Well, I was going to, okay. I'm glad you just said that because I was going to say, well, surely, yeah, because there's the sea, there's not going to be anything to eat in the winter, presumably. So maybe they're very short lived. I don't know. That's an amazing lifestyle, though. Yeah, it must get uncomfortable near the end of the thought. But <laughs> well, yeah, you need a couple of modium or something, wouldn't you, to shift through that? Um, we, we've talked about some of the places. So, is there? So, right, we want to go rock pooling in Cornwall. We, we've listened to this. You've infused people to go rock pooling. Where is sort of the best beginners place to go in Cornwall if someone wants to go rock pooling? Um, as I said, before, I think the very best thing you could do is to join a group to go for a rock pooling session. It doesn't matter so much where and pretty much any beach with a rock pool will have anemones and gobies and shannies and all these even the cushioned starfish and all those sorts of things. They'll be there. Um, it's more about learning how to look for them. And we have an amazing network of local marine groups all around the Cornish coast. We've got one here where I live now in Loo. There are groups around Newquay, the North Coast, Falmouth, Penzance, you know, wherever you are. And... Certainly during the school holidays um, for most of the year, those groups organise sessions. You don't have to have children. They're open to everyone where you can go along and join the experts to have a look. Um, but otherwise, I'd just say, you know, any beach, just check the tides, go down, find some rocks, look for anywhere that water's accumulated and go slowly, look closely, just gently lift back the seaweed, have a look, gently look underneath rocks. Um, you'll be surprised how much there is even in beach, on beaches that don't seem to have much at all. Oh, definitely. And you've written, obviously, this, well, you've written more than one book on the subject. What is it about rock pools that keeps you going back to them? I think, well, a couple of things. I think rock pools, it's like being able to visit an alien world. I mean, you know, you, 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 go, you go to underwater places, you know, being able to enter a world where we as humans cannot survive. We can't breathe. We'd get too cold. The conditions are just all wrong for us. I think that that in itself enables us to visit a place that is completely outside of our normal everyday experience, which is something in itself. And then the second thing, as a result of those differences, the life that has evolved to live in those conditions is similarly completely mind-blowing and I still after <laughs> I won't say how many years of looking at rock <laughs> get surprised I, I find I find creatures I've never seen before I see animals that I think I know well doing something I never imagined they would notice a different behavior and it's like you know any, any branch of uh, nature study you 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 just enjoy that that feeling of encountering animals on their own terms and seeing them living their lives and feeling feeling connected to it. Um, but that there is something about the rock pools that it's only there. You can only go when the tide's out. You can only stay for a short time. And it's it's constantly changing every every day through the year. There's something different. The, the sands shift, the, the rocks change, the animals come and go, the weather changes. And it's it's never quite the same twice. No, definitely. And and just from some of the little tidbits you've you've rattled off today, it's like something out of Star Wars. It sounds absolutely incredible. And I think anyone listening to this would be bonkers not to go rock pooling at some point, whether it's Cornwall or wherever you can go, and just go and see what you can enjoy 
and uh, and find. Before we go, what I will say is, uh, where can people get your books from if they want to kind of read up on some of the rock pooling that you've done and the advice and whatnot? Where, where are your books available? Or where's the best place to get them from, I should say? Okay, so um, I've got two books. There's Rockpool, Extraordinary Encounters Between the Tides, which is very much a nature writing book for grown-ups, which introduces you to all these different animals, tells you their stories, takes you on a journey down through the shore. Um, and then I have Beach Explorer, which is a children's book with 50 hands-on activities that children can do to really understand how beaches work, how the tides work, what lives there and how it survives. Um, both of my books are available in basically all the normal places you'll get a book. I mean, obviously, please support your local bookshop. Um, they'll be able to get those in for you if they haven't already got them. Also, um, you know, Waterstones, Amazon, all the online, online book retailers as well. Brilliant. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. I always enjoy talking about rock pools. Uh, I can't wait to. I was, sadly, I'm 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 landlubbered in Nottingham. I'm about as far away from a rock pool as you can get in Britain. But I am going to try and get down to Cornwall next year again and do a little bit more. So I can't wait to to get back down there. But thanks for coming on, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's been absolutely lovely. Great stuff. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Heather Butivan. I loved how she'd rattle off the facts. I had no idea there was a sea slug without an anus. That's worth listening to this podcast alone. Now, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and a Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next week, I have hedgehog hero, Hugh Warwick, try saying that five times, as we discuss all things hedgehog. This has been The Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next week. Cheers.